All right, good morning, everyone. Hymn of the week, or hymn of the month, excuse me, still from TLH, number 104. The handouts are on the back there. If you didn't get one, now's the time. The odd stanzas. Now praise we Christ, the Holy One, the Blessed Virgin Mary's Son, far as the Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty God, the martyred innocence of Bethlehem showed forth your praise, not by speaking, but by dying. Put to death in us all that is in conflict with your will, that our lives may bear witness to the faith we profess with our lips. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week is from the book of James, chapter 3. Let's speak this together. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Okay, no man, of course, doesn't mean that a woman is able to tame the tongue, and it's just the... The males that can't do it, it means everyone, nobody from humankind, no one from man is able to tame the tongue, for it is unruly. The tongue is uh, without thinking, it is without reason, and it is without care. The tongue speaks forth a word, uh, and it is full of deadly poison as well. It is full of harsh words. It is full of lies and slander and gossip. The tongue is a poison quite potent. One drop is enough to poison an entire person. The tongue can do great damage. There's a great little proverb. Uh, an arrow and a harsh word are both easily loosed but not easily recalled. Once you shoot the arrow, it's really easy to do, but you can't get it back. Once you speak a harsh word against your neighbor, it comes easily as your feelings erupt within you, but it's very difficult to take it back because what has been said has been said, which is one reason why forgiveness is not forgetting that things happened, but living as if you had forgotten, because the cuts wrought by the tongue and the deadly poison that is brought about by the words of the tongue is something not easily forgotten. Okay, let's speak this together again. No man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Okay, this ties in with the catechism from the Eighth Commandment. What is the Eighth Commandment? You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor 
betrayed him, slandered him, or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. Okay, uh, just like with all the other commandments, of course, this is defending a gift of God and uh, defending a gift that exists on the horizontal plane, a love for the neighbor. So this deals with goods of the neighbor, and this is the transition between really dealing with property goods, physical goods, and dealing with the person of your neighbor. Five and six, of course, deal with the person. Seven is sort of property, but then nine and ten are all about the property of your neighbor's possessions. But the eighth commandment is sort of weird because it bridges the gap. It is the possessions of the person. So you have life and you have dignity, yes, and you maintain those, but you also have feelings, you have a psyche, you have a reputation. It is something that you possess, but it's not a physical good. You can't go to the store and buy reputation, or go and buy a psyche, or buy feelings. It's something you have, but not something that is a material that is acquired. And that is what is defended. Uh, so don't cause harm to your neighbor's feelings, to your neighbor's psyche, to your neighbor's mind, or to your neighbor's reputation. Uh, which means that your neighbor ought to be protected and is protected by the Eighth Commandment both in your interactions personally with that individual, what you say, we're having a conversation, trying to tame the tongue, but also in how you interact with your neighbor when your neighbor is not around. That you don't go down to Paula's Cafe in the morning or to the McDonald's at 7 a.m. and speak ill of your neighbor there because they're not here to be a part of it. Or hop on the Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is, whatever your poison is, and sit behind a computer screen and type harsh words against another person that way. Okay? So uh, this is all about reputation, feelings, the nature of the person as an individual with a psyche. Um, also then Put a, uh, explain everything in the kindest way. I don't actually like this translation very much. I prefer it, put the best construction on everything, which I believe is the slightly older translation, or similar to it. Uh, that it isn't just about sitting down with your neighbor and saying, boy, I can't believe you don't know how to work your computer. Fine, I'll show you how to do it, Grandma. <laughs> and being a jerk about trying to help somebody learn how to use their computer and explaining that in the kindest way. No, rather it's about putting the best construction on everything. So uh, when you're talking about the person that doesn't know how to use the computer, you don't say, good grief, you should see this person trying to use the computer. My dog could use it faster than they can. Uh, you put the best construction. Well, you know, they're having some trouble with it. You'd be charitable. I, so I'm going to go and, and help, and maybe it's not my favorite thing to do to go help someone with a computer, but I'm going to do it, and I'm not going to make fun of them to their face or to anybody else. I'm going to be charitable in my speech. I'm going to put the best construction on it. When you meet somebody who's in a foul mood at the Walmart, and you think, boy, that person sure was a pill, instead of saying, boy, that person sure was a pill, you can say, huh, I wonder if that person's having a bad day. See, you're being charitable then, instead of being irritable. Questions? Okay, to Sunday school with you all. Really, the Ten Commandments are all about doing no harm. There are various avenues in which harm may be done. And the commandments seek to encourage you to live by pointing you to the places where life is found, encouraging you not to cross the line and take photos on the other side of that line at the Grand Canyon because you might fall in. Stay on this side because this is where things are good. This is where things are protected. Uh, this is where you can learn to love. All right. My opinion is that we've done enough on the Sixth Commandment, so my plan is that we're going to move ahead to the Seventh Commandment today. 
So this is your chance if you have questions about anything that I've said or talked about or if you don't understand something that I've said or talked about and you want further clarification, you can always ask me any time, but now's the time publicly for Bible class. If you have any questions before we move on, all right. The seventh commandment it is. Listen, by the way, if you want to hear how you can sum up the sixth commandment, and honestly, if you want to sum up all of the commandments on the second table, four through ten, you can do it this way. Can you just be a decent human being? That's it. Can you be a decent human being? It's harder than you think. But that's the summation of it. Sounds easy. Okay, also, before we start, I have to warn you, we're going to have to end Bible class just a hair early today because the choir is singing in church and we haven't looked at the things we're singing in church for a week and a half because Christmas interrup interrupted. So, uh, probably like five after is about when I'm... Yeah, I'm going to need someone else to keep me honest on this because no matter how hard I try... I'll get lost, yeah. <laughs> give, give me a hand signal, and if I ignore that, you just have to yell at me. Take the shepherd's crook and pull me off the stage. Okay? Okay, so, the seventh commandment. You shall not steal. Well, it is as if God says this to you. Uh, I've been given, I have given you many goods. I've given you many things. Be thankful for the things that you have and, uh, and use all of the things that you've been given to my glory and for the benefit of my kingdom here on earth and for the benefit of your neighbor. Enjoy the things that I've given you. They're gifts. You have them. It's okay to enjoy them. Use them. <clears throat> the gifts aren't given so that you can set them on a shelf to collect dust, so that you can look at them and say, boy, that, doesn't that look good? I remember when God gave me that gift. No, he's giving you gifts to utilize, to have, to use, to enjoy. Strive to assist your neighbor because I've also given your neighbor gifts too, just like I've given you gifts. They might not all be the same gifts that you have, but I know that the gifts you have are sufficient for you, and the gifts that your neighbor has are sufficient for your neighbor. So when you see that your neighbor has gifts, don't take the neighbor's gifts and make them your own, but rejoice with him in the fact that he has gifts, as he will rejoice with you in the fact that you have gifts. And uh, Help to protect your neighbor's goods as you would protect your own, just as your neighbor will help to protect your goods as if they were his. Care for the sick and for the poor. Use the gifts that I've given you for love and charity among all people. And be good stewards of the goods you've been given. So if you look at it this way then, what's the difference between the seventh commandment and the ninth and tenth commandments? To me, covet means wanting. Okay. Stealing means taking. Sure, that's the biggest difference. Uh, one, one commandment deals with the act of taking harming your neighbor in his body and in his possessions by removing them from him, or harming your neighbor by wishing ill against him and desiring to take away from him, desiring that which is his, heaping ill will, the evil eye, that's what they call it. Uh, so like in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, when... Uh, 
when he goes out and he gathers some in the morning and then some in the afternoon and some in the evening, but he pays them all the same, a full day's wage. And the workers who got there early in the morning are angry. And he says, is your eye evil because I am good? Are you, are you envious of what is theirs? Are you looking at me, the one who gives the gifts, with an evil eye, which is more than the stink eye? The stink eye is part of it. Oh. Uh, but it's also the idea of cursing somebody, keeping curses upon you through the glare of the eye. And actually, in, uh, in the Mediterranean culture, the evil eye is a big thing. If you go there, many people have little uh, ceramic or glass or painted eyes on their doors or hanging above their doors which is an eye to ward away the evil eye. So that if somebody is giving you the evil eye and heaping curses upon you, that they won't remain upon your household. So the, the idea of having the evil eye, heaping a curse upon someone because you're envious, because you hate. Uh, that's sort of what's going on. Yeah, Bill. Uh, I always put the difference between, now that you make me think about it a little bit, the difference mm -hmm. between the seventh and the ninth and tenth commandments. My dad told me a story one time, and this goes back at least 75 years. Uh, there, was a, there was a man in, in the Fairfax community who, who had some wealth, and there was a farm that he wanted, and there were a pair of brothers that were bachelors farm the ground and they were four stewards of their land mm -hmm. and they tend to want to go uh, drink a little beer when they should have been cultivating corn and those things and the man with some wealth wanted the farm and they they needed some money to put the crop in and he loaned them a little money and then he loaned them a little more money and then he told them that they needed to, to uh, build a barn and they yeah they needed a buck barn and so he loaned them money uh, there's a little more but if I tell them tell them that part about the barn it gives away the identity to somebody but anyway and so he builds a barn on the farm and he loaned them a little more money and then finally he had them sign a note and he nailed them there because they borrowed enough money now they can't pay the note off and finally he demands the note and he takes the farm. Hmm. So his desire for the farm was was there to start with, the ninth and tenth commandment, the coveting of the farm. And then by means of hook and crook, he literally he, he almost stole the farm because he because he put them in a position they couldn't pay for it, even though it wasn't what well, he had loaned them wasn't the value of the farm. It's one of the best farms in Axon County. And to me, the seventh commandment there, instead of helping them, he connived to take their, their farm from them. He lost, he, he, he committed the ninth and tenth commandments to start with, and then the seventh commandment was the final. Sure. I, I would also add into the ninth and tenth commandments, and we'll get there, we can talk more about that when we arrive, but who knows when that'll be. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's on my mind right now, so lest I forget, has been the theme of today. Uh, with the ninth and 10th commandment, I also add scheming. So that there's not, it's not only that you shouldn't want a thing that isn't yours, but then hatching the plan. Well, how can I, how can I figure out a way to get this and hatching a scheme and, and with the seventh commandment too, nine, seven, nine, and ten all sort of go together because you never, well, I, I guess almost never have the desire and want to hatch a plan and scheme to take something without actually then taking it. In some cases, that's sort of hard to do. Boy, my neighbor just got a brand new zero pivot John Deere lawnmower and I'm still using that Toro push mower I got at Walmart. Woo! Now, you know, you're not going to be able to get that lawnmower from your neighbor. 
So there is the coveting that you live in resentment of your neighbor because he has the lawnmower that you want but will never have. But in, in many of these cases, there's a scheming that accompanies the coveting, a scheming and, des, and, uh, and planning to take that which isn't yours but which you have decided is rightfully yours and hatching the plan to do it. And then the seventh commandment is the doing of the thing, the, the physical act of removing it from another. Even if, and again, I said this last week in the explanation from the small catechism, but even if it isn't you walking into someone's house and saying, hey, Nancy, this is my coffee now. It's, it's, oh, well, it was an educated guess. Um, so it's not just the physical act of me coming and taking an object, uh, but also if I'm the person sitting in the background scheming to make that happen, using other uh, individuals or organizations to accomplish my ultimate goal, and you can say, well, I'm not the one who did it. Oh, it was this person who did it. I had nothing to do with that. But if you're the one who schemes and orchestrates, and then, you know, just, I don't know anything about this farm story, but using this as the, the example, if your scheme is, well, I can get them into debt by doing it this way, and then everything only appears right, to use the language of the catechism, well, everything was legal, everything was above board, I loaned them the money, they couldn't pay, so now I'm taking it over. Well... It doesn't take a genius to look at that and say, maybe that's some shifty business, that if you're going, taking the back door routes, if you're scheming or doing things that only appears right, that's still something that isn't good and still something that falls under the auspice of the sixth, or seventh commandment. Yeah. Bruce. After we're talking about, you know, uh, helping your neighbor, uh, speaking well of mm -hmm. and not cutting anyone's his. Sometimes you are, uh, but it's always better to err on the side of grace. But, you know, part of the seventh commandment, too, is being a good steward with what you've been given. And sometimes being a bad steward is overextending yourself. And even if it's in the guise of kindness that you're going to overextend yourself because you're trying to help somebody, it's still not being a great steward because... What you have is not being used in the best way. And then it ends up harming you as well. And if you're harming yourself to help another, is that really helping another? I would argue that it isn't. Um, one of the things that the seventh commandment deals with, especially as it pertains to the church as the community, is uh, the issue of tithes and alms. Um, so, you know, what's a tithe? Well... Midweek, student, my plant, what is a tithe? Money that goes to the church. Yeah, the tithe is money that goes to the church. From the fruits that you reap, from that which you glean, some of it goes to the church. Um, and what's the, what's the amount that goes to the church? To do the best of your ability. Well, 
can be anything really between 10 and 100%. But that there's a tie that your life is ordered not around your goods, but that your life is ordered around the church, uh, which does end up involving a little bit of sacrifice because you tithe to the church and don't buy all of the things that you maybe want to buy because some of it doesn't stay yours. Now the other thing, there's two money things with the church. So tithing goes to the church so that the church can continue being the church, which is more than simply, well, we've got to pay the lights, got to pay the pastor, make sure you give. It's, it's more than that, which I'll touch on in a minute. But the other money thing with the seventh commandment for Christians is tithing and Alms, okay? Tithe and alms. Tithes go to the church, alms go to the poor. So if you go to many churches, they'll have what they call a poor box, right, on, uh, on your way out that you can put money in, and then that money goes out to the poor. So what's the difference between the tithe and the alms? Well, here's what it is. Some of, some of the tithe money, yes, does go toward making sure the church continues to be able to function that you continue to have a roof and a building that you can use for worship. But a lot of that other money goes to help the community. If you look at the book of Acts, Acts is really the model of the church. That's where you get the between 10 and 100%. You know, I love it when people say, well, that's what I give is really between me and God. And I say, sure it is, yeah between 10 and 100%. Anywhere in the middle there is between you and God. But God's already laid out the parameters that he would desire. Jesus was a good Jewish boy. He gave 10% to the church. But when you start to get into Acts, there's these people that sell everything they have and give 100% to the church. Now, if you really want to do that, you're free to do it. Um, but most people don't. <laughs> okay, so, but anyway... Um, Generally speaking, that's about uh, what that money is used for. But then in terms of the community, above and beyond, oh, we need lights. Oh, we have to pay the mortgage on the building. We've got to make sure it's heated for Sunday. The particulars, well, we've got to make sure we have the bread and the wine. We have to make sure we have the paper and the toner and all of that business. Above and beyond all of that, the most important reason for the tithe is so the church can take care of herself. The church is not something that you do on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday morning. It's a community of which you are a part. When you're baptized, it's not a stamp that's put on you so you can walk around and say, well, look at this cool thing that I got that one time. It's, it's the admission into the community of believers. It's the admission into the hospital for sinners. And what that means then is the church takes care of her own. When you look at Acts, there are people who, the widows and the uh, orphans are taken care of by the church. They get their bread. The church provides. Uh, so to put it bluntly, nobody who is a member of the church should ever at any time and for any reason have to go to, say, the food pantry and to be a customer at the food pantry. The food pantry is a wonderful thing, and I'll talk about it in just a second. But on, on the seventh commandment applies to the church as a community as well as it does to individuals. That You've been given a gift, and the gift comes to the church, and then the church has been given a gift, and the church uses the gift to the benefit of others, to take care of people. No one from the, from the community should have to go outside the community to find aid. Because the community of believers, that is the church, should be so focused on one another that they are caring for each other. Now this is where alms come in. Tithes go to take care of the church. Alms go to take care of the poor outside the church. So now this is why the food pantry is such a good thing. Just continuing with this example. Because uh, the church gives money 
as alms to the poor to support the food pantry. There are a lot of people that go to the food pantry that don't come to church. In fact, it's always preferable that the people going to the food pantry aren't members of the church. If you're, if you're a member of the church and you have to go to the food pantry, the church isn't doing its job because it's not taking care of you. And it ought to be. But if you're outside the church, if you are a poor person in the community who is not a member of any church, then the church also has avenues to help you there, like we support the food pantry. That's an alms. That goes to you who are not a part of our community, the church community, but who are a part of our local neighborhood community, and we want to help everybody. We want to be good stewards of the gifts that we have been given. Here's a really great example. Flood money. And I'm just going to say this because I'm so blown away by generosity. Uh, just in the past two weeks, we've gotten almost $35,000 that came into this church. And guess where it's all going? Out. It's not staying here. It's burning a hole in my pocket right now. We can't get rid of it fast enough. So all of this money is coming in, and a lot of it has come in from private individuals and congregations. Because the church isn't just each individual congregation but it is also the whole community of believers, and they take care of one another, the mutual consolation of the brethren and the communion of saints. That, it, that there is this collection of individuals that believe, and when one part of the body hurts, the entire body hurts. And it's alms that come out so that they can go out. Questions? I saw... Well, Yes, it goes out to the people from our congregation who need it and to the people in the community who need it. We take care of our people first, and then when, when we've taken care of our people, it goes out. We have more than I ever thought that we would, which means we can take care of people better than I thought we could. Which is... Yeah, thanks be to God. It's a wonderful example of the seventh commandment in action. And the positive of the seventh commandment, not that people go, well, doggone it, I'm supposed to help my neighbor. Well, fine, okay, I'll get here. Take care of yourself, all right? No, that's not what it is at all. It's the goodness of caring for each other, loving your neighbor. The positive side of the seventh what faith does without being asked. So then if you had a member who was giving above their means, you know, and had to go to the It, well, if somebody was giving so much to the church that they couldn't afford to eat, yes, I would talk with that person and say, we rejoice in your generosity, but you do have to live. I mean, the 10% thing doesn't always work. Not everybody, there is a certain percentage, which is on the low end, but there's still a certain percentage of people in the community that are unable to do even that. And in cases like that, really it's the widow's might. You have to live, take what you need to live, and give what you are able. And we will rejoice with your penny in the coffer just as much as we will rejoice with anybody else who puts in whatever else. We don't do it for the show. It's not about Pharisees making grand gestures and brilliant speeches as they show forth how generous they are. If we could be generous in the background and never even be seen or known for our generosity, that would be the best. That you can take care of people, but that you don't have to ever deal with taking any of the credit for it. That would be the best. Because you don't take care of people so that you're recognized in doing so. Yes? I have heard that the food pantry is not going to get things from uh, Walmart. Yes. So, will the congregation, I'm on the board, but I, there's, 
there are still decisions being made on that front. What I will say, though, is this. A newsletter just came out for the month of January, so you can pick that up. And in every single newsletter on the little events and activities or whatever bit that is, there's always a little thing about the monthly needs for the food pantry. And if you're looking for a way to give your alms, uh, helping the food pantry or something like that <laughs> is always a way to do it. And every single month since I've been here, virtually, I've tried to make sure that the needs are listed there for anybody who wants to direct their alms in that way. So that's, that's what I'll say. Now, any other? Yes? Uh, I've lived in the real world in Uh-huh. So maybe I haven't seen those out that when there's a tragedy, like in our rural area, whether it be flooding or family member or someone that has had an accident, uh, it seems like the neighbors get together and assist either in harvesting or packing the crop, uh, and that uh, even the local vendors will donate like fuel equipment and stuff to help, uh, say, if there's been a, an act of farm accident. Mm -hmm. And the same with the flooding issue. I mean, people didn't write down, I helped John Doe so many hours. People bailed in and helped. Now, yes. I don't know if you see that in your big cities where, say, a neighbor has something that occurs. Uh, because it, it just seems and it's not expected that people who know them have to be asked. They just chip in, and you might see farmers letting their own crops and stuff go, not get land to to go ahead and help family that's in trouble. And I think you see that going to yeah, I don't want to sell the city short and say that it doesn't happen in the city and that it only happens in the rural areas. But I will say that you're right, it is more visible in the rural areas because it's a smaller community. So it's more visible and I think in many ways it's felt more deeply because of how tightly knit the small communities are. Which is one reason why I really like the small communities because uh, you get to see and experience things like that on a, on a more intimate level than perhaps you get to see in the city. Uh, it's a wonderful example of what it is to love your neighbor, and specifically in terms of the seventh commandment, being a good steward of your resources, helping, you, you, helping to protect and preserve what God has given to your neighbor by using the gifts that God has given you. Uh, it's a wonderful example. <clears throat> I think that for all the bad that's happened in this over these last months here since that flood, there's also been a significant amount of good that's been illustrated and witnessed in the willingness of individuals within the community to come and to help, to give of their own resources to uh, provide aid to those in need. And I think that's a beautiful thing. That's, that's a beautiful illustration of the Christian life in general and the seventh commandment in particular. Um, so now let's look at Mark. Chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, 17 through 22. Jesus started on his way, and the man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. <clears throat> good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad 
Because he had great wealth. Ah, okay. Here's my first question. All of you lifelong Lutherans. The <laughs> set up question here, I can see. Yeah, I've got the sly eye. Mm -hmm. How is this text almost always preached? What's the thing you hear? In the, last, the last verse. Okay, he's sad because he had great wealth. What else? Well, it's all second table. Okay. Uh, okay. He put his wealth before God. Yes. Well, you're all saying really good things, and you're, you're making a fool of me because you're not saying what I want you to say. <laughs> oh, here's. Okay. All right. Here's but what there, I. Okay, I got. I think another point and that is I don't know that Jesus intended him to sell everything as much as he said that to see what his response was going to be. If he just said, okay, I yeah. can do that, yeah. that was, he, he, Jesus might have come back and said, well, you don't have to sell everything. But I want to see what, <clears throat> what he was requiring was what is your commitment to me over and above keeping the law. Sure. But you're forgetting one thing. Jesus knew Yeah. Jesus he knew. Posed, he posed that to more of a teaching point, and there's also a uh, uh, But Jesus knew, but in order to put it in scripture, somebody's got to relate it. Can you move up here between you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll just be honest with you. No, um, So on the thing, the whole idea about selling, go sell all that you have. And then tying this in with Jesus saying, it's easier for a rich man to enter through the, or uh, for a camel to enter the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter in heaven. Does that mean it's bad if you're wealthy? No. Does it mean that it's bad to have things? No. Does it mean that if you really want to be a real disciple of Jesus, that you have to give up everything? I mean, I know that you're all, you're all okay disciples, but that, that John Doe there, I mean, he gave everything to the church. So he's a better disciple than all of you. Well, no, not at all. When Jesus says this, it's not really about what it looks like it's about. It's not really about telling the man, you can't have any possessions if you want to be a disciple of me. You can't have anything. Because we know that what God gives is a good gift. If God gives you success and wealth and you have lots of goods, that's fine. Thanks be to God. So you don't have to go and sell everything you have and you don't have to, be, you don't have to feel guilty if you are somebody who's been successful. Mindy had a, her hand up. I was just, to me, something that That's the Lutheran answer I wanted to hear. Every single sermon that I have ever heard on this text goes like this. That man asked the wrong question. He said, what must I do? But it's all about what Jesus does. True or false? Well, it's true. But you, you're really only looking at the surface of the text. Yes, the man does say, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, you know. You know what the commandments are. And the man says, yes, yes, yes. I've kept these. I've kept these. And then it says, Jesus loved him. He told Jesus, I've kept all of the commandments. And Jesus loved him. Does the man sincerely 
Uh, let me ask it this way. Is this man a sincerely pious man? Yes. Yes, he is. Absolutely, he is. Does he piously attempt to keep the law? Yes, he does. Does he strive after the holy things of God? Yes. Does he sincerely believe that he is keeping the law? Yes. And Jesus doesn't tell him he's wrong. In so many words. But he posed the question to accent the fact that uh, his, this I've done, which is, is wrong. He, he, I shouldn't say it's wrong. Let, <clears throat> Go ahead. Let me ask you this question. Why does a man so pious and, as it seems, so knowledgeable of the law who believes that he has kept the law and who strives after it, why does a man like that, who for all intents and purposes should have total confidence in his salvation based on what he's studied and believes, why does that man come to Jesus and ask him what more he has left to do? Because any sane person who was so confident in his, in his salvation wouldn't feel the need to ask this great teacher what there was left to do. He would say, well, I've done the things I need to do. I'm saved. I'm, I don't need to ask. I'm confident. So why, what motivates this man all of a sudden to come to this man, Jesus, doubting his salvation? Well, what, what, what must I do? See, he's not sure that works are going to save you. He's not so sure. This Jesus has been preaching a lot, and this guy has heard Jesus, and he's, Jesus is saying things that seem to be different than what the Pharisees and scribes say. So now he goes to Jesus, and he says, What? I thought I knew. But you are wise. Tell me, what is it that I need to do? I've been keeping the law. Uh, like Moses said, like the priest said, I've been doing everything that I've been told I have to do. What do you say that I have to do? It's not about him having a works righteous faith. Jesus loves him because the man wants so desperately to see the mercy of God, to be a man of faith, to be pious. He wants so desperately. And Jesus, and he says, I've kept, I've kept the commandments. And Jesus said, well, one thing you still lack. Whatever you have, give it to the poor. And the man is sorrowful, not only because he has much possessions, but because he realizes he's been attached to them. The man realizes that in being attached to his wealth, he hasn't kept any of the commandments because the God whom he's worshipped has been his wealth. There's a deeper sadness than, well, gee, I'm really wealthy and I don't want to give it up. There's a deeper sadness than just that. The deeper sadness is the realization that as hard as I've tried to keep that law, I've been looking at everything the wrong way. And um, what this means in terms of the seventh commandment is not that you have to go and give away everything that you have, but put the seventh commandment and the gifts of God, every, all the goods that you've been given, in the context of which commandment? The first commandment. God will give you gifts, but if the gifts that God gives you become God's, if the gifts that you are given eclipse the one who is the giver, then you should get rid of them. Flee from idolatry. Sometimes idolatry is in wealth. It's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle and easier uh, uh, than it is for a rich man to get into heaven because... The rich man, stereotypically the rich man, that character type, loves money more than anything or anybody else. 
and it will be easier for someone else to get into heaven than that rich man because that rich man has created enough idols. Now, the rest of the story for this young ruler, or this young man, is what? I've mentioned it in passing before. This is a test. There's a reason that this whole thing is blown up in Mark's gospel. Because the young man comes back in Gethsemane. Because the young man is Mark. The young ruler here, the rich young man, is the evangelist Mark. He never mentions himself by name, but this account and the account in the Garden of Gethsemane when the man comes in and all he has is a tunic and he follows Jesus and he goes with him and then he tries to escape the cross and runs away naked, that's Mark. The rest of the story for the rich young man is that he repented, that he really did say there's more to life than riches. He really did give up what he had and he really did follow Jesus. But even he, with the rest of the disciples, fled. So think about that then, that the rich young man is the evangelist Mark, that Levi, the tax collector, is Matthew, that there's these people and they'll write to you about themselves but they won't often use their names. John does it all the time. The disciple whom Jesus loved, he never uses his name, but it's him. So they're recording these things both as eyewitnesses and as the ones to whom it actually happened. Yes, okay. Questions? Okay, I'll accept points. When he says, what must I do? Mm -hmm. Always get in trouble. Typically, when you start using the first person, what, what must I Sure, sure. But my point, and my point is not to say that the question, what must I do, generally speaking, is a bad question. My point is to say that in the context of this narrative, the question comes from the pious heart. The pious heart that believes it understands because it believes what has been given it to understand. That the, the priests, that would be like your pastor telling you one thing and you piously believing that one thing that a pastor told you and then the district president or the president of synod came and told you something that was vastly different than what your pastor said and then you thought, well, but, but I understood it this way. What now must I do to understand this better? That kind, of a, that kind of an idea. I thought what I knew was correct and now I'm realizing it's incorrect. What do I do? That's, that's the context here. Yeah, so, okay. Any other questions, comments, points? Okay, if you're in the choir, please come to the conference room. I'll see the rest of you at the altar.